This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. We're back with another edition of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series. In this week's edition of the series, I speak with Dr. Nassim Parvin. Dr. Nassim Parvin is an associate professor at the Digital Media Program at Georgia Tech, where she directs the Design and Social Justice Studio. Her research explores the ethical and political dimensions of design and technology, especially as related to questions of democracy and justice. Rooted in pragmatic ethics and feminist theory, she critically engages emerging digital technologies such as smart cities or artificial intelligence in their wide-ranging and transformative effect on the future of collective and social interactions. Her interdisciplinary research integrates theoretically driven humanistic scholarship and design-based inquiry, including publishing both traditional scholarly papers and creating digital artifacts that illustrate how humanistic values may be cultivated to produce radically different artifacts and infrastructures. Her scholarship appears across disciplinary venues in design, such as design issues, human-computer interaction, such as ACM-CSCW, science and technology studies, such as science, technology, and human values, as well as philosophy, such as Hypatia, Journal of Feminist Philosophy. Her designs have been deployed at nonprofit organizations such as the Mayo Clinic and exhibited in venues such as the Smithsonian Museum, receiving multiple awards and recognitions. She is the editor of Catalyst, Feminism, Theory, Technoscience, an award-winning journal in the expanding interdisciplinary field of STS, and she serves on the editorial board of Design Issues. Her teaching has received multiple recognitions, inclusive of the campus-wide 2017 Georgia Tech CETL-BP Junior Faculty Teaching Excellence Award. Dr. Parvin received her PhD in design from Carnegie Mellon University. She holds an MS in information design and technology from Georgia Tech and a BS in electrical engineering from the University of Tehran, Iran. Hi, Nassim. Hi. So, Nassim, your research, as your bio puts it, and I think that this is incredibly ambitious, explores the ethical and political dimensions of design and technology, while also answering pressing questions about the influence of digital technologies on the future of social and collective interactions. So let me start off by asking you, what are some of the major questions that come up when thinking about the ways in which design inextricably informs technology? Well, Mine is a very broad definition of design that includes all what people do, conceiving and making products. And I see technology as an outcome of dreaming up and making up things. So in that sense, I see design and technology tightly linked. And then technology, sort of that gives us a broad definition of technology too, uh, to include AI applications, very sophisticated digital technologies, but also the way I put it to my students, toasters and posters, you know, everything, hammers and nails. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those tools are technologies too. Uh, And we can kind of think about how they change the nature of situations that we reside in, how they change the the worlds that we live in, and ultimately change our interactions with one another. 
some of the questions I think we should think about when it comes to design are, who is the designer? Who is the designer designing for? As I start to think about these questions in relation to design, the more I start to realize that design is often a reflection of somebody's blind spots, experiences, and their passions as much as it is the purpose of the technology itself. So how do we understand the relationship between democratic participation in design and equitable outcomes of technological production? What policies or principles would you advocate for to ensure that the genesis of our technological production is this idea that we're building ethically and equitably and not just simply reproducing individual and institutional biases? Well, I'm glad that more and more people are asking questions about who's the designer or designers and for whom they design. I wouldn't put or frame the problem as bias, though. To me, the language of bias implies a deviation from what is objective, neutral, or, you know, otherwise comprehensive. Um, So inadvertently, when we speak of bias, we end up assuming one of the hallmarks of positivist thinking that is objectivity, and that has led us to the situation we are in. I'm more interested in the maxim offered by feminist SDS scholars, such as Sandra Harding, that strong objectivity is strong reflexivity. And what that means is that the goal is not to remove the person from the situation. That's not possible. It's not desirable. But what we need to do is to think carefully about specific subject positions as sources of deep insight. um, And at the same time, recognize that they are partial. The key issue is not that we mistrust our individual and, you know, or collective positions, and the knowledge that resides there, but that we are reflexive about, you know, what those knowledges are and complement it with, you know, uh, what others know who may or may not experience phenomena in the same way as we do. Returning to your question on policies and principles, then one that quickly emerges from what we just talked about is that of democratic participation in design processes. We need to be wary of top-down models of design that don't account for knowledge positions of people who are directly or indirectly impacted by them. You know, when I hear you talk about subject positions, knowledge positions, it reminds me that by training your professor of literature, media and communication as a professor of literature uh, myself, you know, I'm really interested in how the language of taking apart this idea of objectivity, the language of responding to master narratives um, has become part of how we think in the culture about something like technology. Can you share a little bit about how your background as a professor of literature, media and communications with a kind of expertise in thinking about the way that language and that forms of expression, that tropes and that context of um, narratival production lend themselves to your critique of technology? Well, I think part of the answer to your question has to do with my personal and intellectual background. So, you know, I came to the United States 20 years ago with a degree in engineering. I loved math and science. And sort of that gave me a certain way of thinking about the world. And I was really interested in the precision of math, you know, and the beauty of math. But then, you know, I was interested in 
you know, design and architecture. And I ended up with this, you know, in this path of studying discipline entirely different than my own. And through that, I was challenged day to day about how I understood the world. And I saw the differences and the, you know, values that those differences bring to the fore, but also how some of these assumptions, when we are deeply ingrained in some of these cultures, those assumptions seem, you know, incontroversial or <laughs> given. So for me, it's a part of parcel part and parcel of who I am mm -hmm. and sort of that's my interest in philosophy and a pluralistic way of thinking about values thinking about ways of knowing my classes I teach you know positivism and like I tell my students how it has given us these communication tools that we are you know we use every day but at the same time certain ways of thinking that it has celebrated are not adequate for other spheres of life. And we really need to bring all of these different ways of thinking together, given the complexity of problems that we are dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of one tenant, uh, positivistic movement that got disrupted by a man named Alfred North Whitehead, um, who realized at a certain point in time that the positivistic project, which was to attempt to describe the material world in precise terms, as precise and as empirically true as possible, ran into a bit of a hiccup once you realized that you couldn't really say anything, anything interesting about our reality without resorting to things like metaphors. So like, for example, sound wave, a wave is not literally what happens when we hear a noise. But the metaphor used to describe it comes from the material world. But of course, that metaphor is not neutral. It is a decision made by a culture to enlist a certain concept as a way to describe the material reality. So it matters, right? It matters which metaphors we choose. It matters what language we use to describe that reality. And the language and the metaphor is determined by culture. I really love how you foreground language as a technology that shapes how we see the world. I think anybody who tries, like, uh, who tries to tell a story or a joke uh, from, you know, sort of translated from one language to another knows how complex that process is. It's a rich process too. Like, again, that's why we need these different languages. We need these different epistemic approaches uh, to seeing and knowing the world, as opposed to reducing them to one right way. I wonder, is there a particular technology or a particular metaphor within technological processes that you're thinking of as you say that? Is there a particular uh, case or example where the metaphors we use or the language that we use matters in terms of the distribution or the conceptualization of a technological product? Sure. One of my areas of research recently has focused on self-driving cars as a technology. and. In that work, I talk about how uh, we may refer to this technology as a killing robot, which will then change how we see the technology and how we approach it. When we think about self-driving cars as cars, you know, a certain set of histories and discourses come into play that are important. I actually think that if we take those discourses seriously, there's a lot that can be gained um, 
even to think about you know, a concept like jaywalking and how that was promoted by car companies to put the blame of accidents on pedestrians as opposed to cars. But I think with self-driving cars, we have a different situation entirely because now we are programming these machines um, to make life and death decisions in situations when an accident is inevitable. And so if we talk about them as killing robots, a whole new sets of discourses about militarization, about the design of weaponry, um, ethics and politics associated with that come into play. We also see the situation differently because all of a sudden we are faced with imagining a future scenario where at any moment, you know, walking down the street, we could be the target of a killing machine. What is it like to live in a city um, that is so dangerous? I mean, it's already dangerous to live in cities, given the speed and sort of configuration of how we have designed them and how car-centric they are. But I think, you know, adding, you know, self-driving cars with killing algorithms to the equation is makes cities even more dangerous. And so that's one example of changing the language, moving away from, in the same way that cars are not horseless carriages, self-driving cars are not cars either. So we need sort of to think carefully about what language does and how it frames the situation there. Yeah, yeah. As a fellow uh, professor of literature, I, I share your uh, interest in, in the importance of naming. And I'm particularly intrigued by this case because words, after all, describe and create our realities. They name our realities and they frame the way that we respond to those realities. So then to follow your example here, how does the label self-driving car define our reality? And what reality would the killing robot as an alternative name for that reality uh, name. How does it get to a truth about this technology? If so, what is that truth? I'm not sure if I describe it as a truth, but as sort of description of phenomena, like what are the issues that it foregrounds? And again, self-driving cars, it's uh, sort of the idea is futuristic. It kind of uh, relates to all the literature about um, how machines could potentially be autonomous, do things for us, be at the service of people. Whereas if we refer to them as killing robots again, we have to pause and think about what the, you know, wide-ranging deployment of this technology might mean for the future of our cities, for, you know, it, are these streets that children can play in or can elderly traverse? What other possibilities are they foreclosing just because we are so fascinated by the fact that they can, like, presumably do things on their own? Yeah, yeah, this is interesting for me. I mean, today the big news is that Tesla drivers can now play video games while their cars steer. Uh, so, so this 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 is uh, a big deal, and and it makes me think. Well, what is this technology really about? And to to my mind, part of this is the idea that 
a uh, automated technology is superior to a human intellect, which is very frequently um, capable of making misjudgments, of getting distracted, things like that. And, you know, I interviewed the philosopher Eric Katz for the series, and one comment he made to me stood out. Uh, he pointed out that technologies are not only developed in light of human values, but enabled with those values. And that as those values become woven into the fabric of human life, and as those technologies become woven into the fabric of human life, they actively change our values as they restructure human life. Now, I've thought about that at this moment, because it seems to me that the value that's woven into the idea of the self-driving car is that an automated form of judgment is superior to a human form of judgment in a sense that that kind of mechanical reasoning is capable of making decisions, including who should live and who should die if the mechanical uh, object comes to that choice that human intellect or that human decision making is too capricious about or that it is not capable about. How would you think about that? Which technologies self-driving cars or killing machines or otherwise do you see as having particularly wide-ranging and transformative effects on our values, especially for the future of collective and social interactions for our cities, for our polis, for our culture, for our communities? I really love where you're taking this question too, because there is this idea that, you know, people are inferior to machines is very much dominant in the discourse of designing technologies. In terms of values, one example that stands out to me is um, a couple of years ago, um, there was a lot of buzz around Tesla. And, you know, the achievement was that you say you come out of a restaurant and you can summon your Tesla from the parking lot. And to me, you know, that's an example of misplaced set of values. When we think about mobility in the city, whose mobility matters and who are we designing for? Is it really <laughs> um, a good problem to sort of engineering or design problem to solve to think about, oh, you know, I am now able to summon my Tesla to be able to get into my car two minutes sooner than I wouldn't otherwise. You know, if we reject that hypothesis, then we can think about, well, whose uh, mobility is most restricted in cities. Do we actually want cities that are centered around cars or is this an occasion to rethink our ideas around mobility? Is this an occasion to think about how we can design cities that are more sustainable, that are more inclusive? More and more children cannot walk or bike to school by themselves. People with disabilities, people who, for one reason or another, don't have access to a car are basically eliminated from basic services, be it voting, be it education, be it, you know, access to fresh food in the cities that have been designed around cars. Again, it's a matter of reimagining the dominant values that animate the design of technologies and asking, well, is this a vision of future that we want to uh, move toward? There's um, a case that's frequently associated with 
problems or ethical problems with self-driving cars is what's often phrased as the unintended consequence of automated cars, perhaps mistaking person for some other obstruction in the road, hitting that person. Of course, there are all sorts of unintended consequences that are correlated with biased AI. I believe still the case that self-driving cars are automated using the technology of photography, which in and of itself was developed primarily to capture white skin so that the disproportionate unintended consequences are uh, thrust upon people of color who are more likely to get hit on the road because these technologies are built in with prior technologies that carry uh, biases in them. So I know that you are a bit skeptical of that term unintended consequences, as am I, because I think sometimes by unintended consequences, what we really mean are willfully ignored consequences. But I've heard you talk about the problem and using that term unintended consequences. And I think that the, the uh, case that I just gave points out one of the problems in using that term or what that term maybe ignores. Is unintended consequences the right phrase or is there something that that phrase masks or hides or blocks us from understanding? As you describe the question, the situation of how, what can go wrong in the design of these technologies, it's clear that we can anticipate these problems. It is just that we decide not to deal with them as we are developing the technology. So in a way, the term unintended consequences is about abdicating responsibility. Yeah. You talk about that phrase, unintended consequences, and I'm going to use your terms here in uh, the terms of being exculpatory, disciplinary, and ideological. Can you help us understand why we use that phrase, unintended consequences, to talk about some of the uh, worst consequences of technological production, culture, and ideation? And in what ways is that term exculpatory, disciplinary, and ideological? I think that here, the story that animates the piece can be useful. The short version is that I go to a coffee shop with a colleague. We've been introduced to each other because we are interested in smart cities. And you know, he's very enthusiastic about potentials of smart cities. So I ask him to tell me more uh, why he's interested in this area and what he's doing. He explains that he's really interested in how smart cities can make the city more efficient. Um, and he gives me this case that is commonly used in the literature. Um, the idea that, you know, say there's an emergency vehicle that wants to go from point A to point B. If we have a centralized command and control center, we can turn all the lights green in its pathway. And as a result, say the patient gets to the emergency room faster. Now, I agree with him in response, but at the same time, I share my concern that a centralized system like that is prone to hacking or how the entire city would be impacted if anything goes wrong in that command center. I also mentioned that we could think about the problem holistically. It is wise maybe to invest our in money in more emergency centers or better healthcare system that doesn't push people to emergency rooms. You know, as I finished my conversation, I see he's like disinterested in hearing more. And when I finish, 
he basically sits back in his chair, rolls his shoulders and says, oh, well, but those are all just unintended consequences. Now, this is exculpatory because what he really means to say is that, look, I don't mean to do any of that. So as long as that's not my intention, it's okay. It's disciplinary because it has the power to undermine and dismiss the epistemological value of what is being raised. At the same time that he claims ownership of it, he says that, oh, but I know all of this. These are issues, uh, you know, that you're raising. We are aware of them, but they are uninteresting or out of place in the current moment. And it is ideological because it works to advance technological development, no matter how costly or dangerous it is. Um, And sort of, you know, removing or taking away um, resources from more nuanced approaches to problems and framing it sort of pushing them to the sideline. Whenever I teach this um, sort of talk about unintended consequences and this specific instance with my students, I talk about how the conversation in a way is an allegory for, you know, the conversation across disciplines, how social sciences and humanities and STS have been raising these issues for so many years now, and then engineering has decided to ignore them. It is a very personal, intimate conversation that actually happened, but it is also standing for the broader conversations across technology um, sort of discourses. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more specifically about that term and the history of that term, unintended consequences of technology. I know that that is related to a project that you're working on and collaborating on currently. So could you give us a history of that term and a bit about the project? The idea came about from a visceral reaction um, and general dissatisfaction with how the term was used. Here, I'd like to acknowledge my co-author, Anne Pollock, who shared these experiences and the piece really came out of our conversations. In the research papers I was reading, when students presented their projects, ideas in classes, they used the term unintended consequences as a kind of a catch-all term to package everything that they did. They didn't um, have time to consider or didn't want to consider. So they acknowledged and dismissed the issues all at once, uh, saying that, well, they didn't intend for the app or digital technology that they were designing uh, to negatively impact this or that population, even though they clearly were aware that it would. Now, the fact that you don't intend to harm others does not remedy or address the harm done. I don't care about your intentions, uh, but about the consequences of your actions. And that in turn led me to look into the history of and usage of the term. It turns out that it was first introduced as unanticipated consequences by Robert Merton in the 30s to enumerate ways that one could fail to foresee the consequences of their action. But it was generally, gradually shifted in usage and the term unintended consequences took hold. Before any technology can be created, it first has to be imagined. And the purpose of it also has to be imagined. You cannot 
get funding for an idea if you can't articulate the purpose of the idea. So the purpose of the idea has to be thought through from the inception of the technology. But the, the thing is that there are no neutral purposes. Purposes always imply values about what's important, about what we should do. And to my mind, this abnegation of responsibility for thinking through the consequences is absolutely infuriating. And I think that it's enabled as well by a lack of care or concern about language. And I would go back to, you know, your relationship to language itself and look at some of the kind of unintended consequences. You as listeners can't see me. I'm putting this in air quotes of technology in something like, for example, Facebook. What's Facebook's purpose? What's the cliche that they describe themselves by? Connecting the world, right? It's connecting the world. The purpose of connecting the world is so cliche and so abstract that it seems like nobody thought about, well, why are we connecting the world? Is it good for us to connect the world? Should we live in a world where people are connected to 4,000 other people? Is that good for us to be connected in that way? So the unintended consequences of technology are tied to a lack of concrete thinking and a lack of concrete articulation about the purpose of technology from the get-go, which is what I think you're articulating here. You know, if you don't have to think about concretely the purpose, the aim, if you don't have to articulate it concretely, then you can justify these unintended consequences of technology, um, even if they are only unintended because nobody gave the time to think them through, which I think is something that you indict uh, in your work as well. You mentioned, and I'm going to quote you here, that unintended consequences operate in a subtle but insidious way to uphold the status quo, especially institutional structures and knowledge regimes that have produced those negative impacts inclusive of the entrenched privilege of expertise in narrowly technical domains while avoiding accountability. Now, a couple of seasons uh, ago on the show, we had Chris Tegica, who's the CEO of the Center for the Unintended Consequences of Technology. And on the show, uh, as he and I were talking, he told me that he regarded unintended consequences as well as a kind of cop-out and instead remarked on them as willfully ignored. What phrase would you use instead of that phrase, unintended consequences. What should we replace that term unintended consequences with to serve as a vehicle and a way to invoke meaningful conversations about what these consequences and outcomes actually are? I think one of the reasons why the term unintended consequences is used is to, again, abdicate blame. Like, this is not my fault. I didn't do this. And we know in you know, our institutions and organizations, what produces technology is not usually one person. So I'm not interested in locating blame. For me, the question leads to what Donna Haraway puts forward as a commitment to ethical non-innocence. We need to recognize that we will never be able to take pure innocent action, but that is not an excuse for inaction. So if you really didn't take into account the consequences of this or that technology, we need to think through what led to your inability or inaction to do the same. And it's, again, not about, you know, 
blame or uh, praise, although technology designers are often quick to <laughs> take credit for what goes right, I would not use the term unintended consequences at all. I would be more you know, interested in how, how things happen. What, what is the story? And the story tends to be more complicated than one person not doing their job or willfully ignoring something, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think we're talking about structures uh, here as well. And part of that structure is not just the production, but also the ideation of a technological production. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about the importance of that ideation process, not just intervening into the process of technological production in order to avert these again, I'm using air quotes here, unintended consequences, but also intervening into the origins of that product, which happens in the stage of ideation. In your work, you ask why those who designed products did not seem to take a line of questioning that might have averted some of these consequences back to the inception of the project or the product when the design was being discussed. What reason do you give for this non-intervention into the arena of ideation? Why do these questions only come up seemingly after the product's creation? Um, is this another example of moving fast and breaking things so that unintended consequences become part of the de facto norm? Products designed so thoughtlessly in terms of their relationship to human lives and values that the reason that their consequences are unintended is because intention itself was removed from the equation. I guess to sum up my larger interest here, how and why are we moving so fast in the first place that such detrimental and consequential design decisions could be implemented, impacting the lives of millions before people could think about it? It has a lot to do with neoliberal values and a culture of competition and other similar ethos associated with free market capitalism. We have effectively defunded humanities and social sciences and neglected the knowledge that they bring to the, to the fore of technology development. They are still separate in the education of designers and engineers in universities. It is assumed that even like now with all the buzz about adding ethics to engineering, it is assumed that all you need to do is to take one or two courses in ethics. Those courses are often not taught by people who have expertise in this area. And, you know, designers or students are not required to bring the knowledge from those courses into the other areas of practice. And most of the other faculty are, you know, not interested in hearing those concerns. So no wonder we end up with reductive approaches to design and deeply flawed technologies or any meaningful intervention that, you know, moves away from the status quo. I think we need to move away from understanding ethics as, you know, telling people to do the right thing and really think carefully about radically changing the environments of knowledge making. That is, you know, our institutes of higher education um, that and sort of alongside that restructuring businesses and how they are run and what the dominant incentives are for them to operate. This is something I think about a lot. You know, I I see a lot of computer science departments now taking on um, and teaching uh, 
workshops in ethics or something like that. And I appreciate the intention and I appreciate, for example, the attention behind a group of AI technologists inviting me to sit on a panel with them, for example. But on those panels, we spend the first five minutes talking about the technology of AI and then the next 55 minutes talking about ethics. And I say, I really appreciate that you're doing this, but just so you know, just as you got a PhD in computer science and you have this vast area of technical expertise, there are people who spend like eight to 10 years of their life becoming experts in ethics and becoming experts in the deep philosophical, social, narratival traditions that allow them to speak on these things. And it might be worthwhile adding some of those people to the table so that they can add their expertise Because just as you have expertise, there's actually humanistic expertise. Humanistic expertise is not just like common sense. It is a trained way of thinking about and seeing the world. And when I take this back to computer science departments, I see that, you know, computer scientists who are brilliant computer scientists are now being tasked with teaching an ethical framework that they really don't understand. And I think it's valiant, but I actually think that there's a better model. And that model uh, involves asking humanists to bring their expertise to this arena and creating space in the humanities for scholars to have the opportunity and frankly, get funding to have their knowledge be part of what we consider when we consider technological production. Absolutely. I, your um, description reminds me of a encounter. I meet this brilliant roboticist and we talk about like in a social set, setting and we talk about his interests in robotics and uh, ethical issues that are brought up. And we end up meeting later at his office and he, he is, of course, very busy. He doesn't have time. We only have t- 30 minutes. Um, I'm sitting in front of this wall of formulas, uh, sort of a whiteboard. And he then asks me in that setting, how can we solve the problem of bias in algorithms? <laughs> <laughs> Standing on and, one foot in five minutes or less. <laughs> go. And he assures me that he has a background in philosophy. And I want to sort of turn the question back at him and say, well, if I have a background in engineering too, if I ask you, how can I build this robot? Tell me in 30 minutes. <laughs> I look ridiculous, right? But somehow it is as if that sort of ethics can be taught in 30 minutes or should solve the problem in 30 minutes uh, when it's actually it's as complicated as making an airplane fly. There's so much nuance there that you can't capture in 30 minutes or so. But I had to what you suggested in terms of bringing people with expertise in this area, I also wonder how should academic value systems and structures change to make that possible? You know, do research and academic institutions allow us for offering joint PhDs where, you know, two or three PhD students collaborate around a shared research topic, allowing different types of epistemic expertise to bear upon the research area that they are investigating. Um, Even humanities, I think, is to blame for its emphasis on single-authored 
manuscripts as the gold standards. The, the problems we are dealing with are too complex and we need to rethink our ways of approaching them in radical ways if we are to address them in any meaningful manner. Yeah. Yeah. I think about this quite a bit. I mean, for example, you know, take COVID. COVID is certainly a problem for bioscientists. It is a problem of virology, but it is also a political problem. It's also a cultural problem. It's also a psychological problem. It's a narratival problem. The complexity of the problem is so multidimensional that it would be silly to think about one form of expertise governing and solving it. It certainly requires that kind of multidisciplinary approach. I really like the model that you're proposing here of multiple scholars working together to solve a problem in an institution. That seems to me to be the right direction for a kind of advanced form of training for the next generation of scholars to be taking. That seems like it would certainly, I think, advance certain principles of thinking in complex ways across different fields in the sphere. Do you have a sense of what that might look like if it were played out in the realm of technological culture and technological production? I think something like that, again, requires a lot of institutional you know, changes. But at the same time, I think small scale experiment is possible where, you know, we try out uh, something like this, but at the same time, we need to recognize that people are involved in this and like what would happen with a, when a PhD student um, has a degree that's a dissertation that is joined with other students. We might also start earlier. So we could think about a joint philosophy and engineering degree or joint classes uh, where you know faculty from different disciplines are speaking into the same topic and sort of occasions like this are not only meant for students but also for re-educating faculty on different epistemic ways of approaching problems. So I learned something from my engineering colleagues and my engineering colleagues learned something about me. We really engage in a meaningful conversation as opposed to thinking about it as a one-way relationship. And anytime I do interdisciplinary projects, I am fascinated by how much I learn from these different perspectives. And we can kind of really foreground that sort of model of uh, knowledge making by designing programs that foster it and value it. Yeah, I think another side effect that you haven't mentioned, but I think is also important to elevate is the fact that the humanities is the space where we talk primarily, or at least extensively, about questions of equity, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, about questions of power, about questions of how power is produced, about who gets to speak. And for that reason, I think that uh, many underrepresented folks in the tech industry go over to the humanities to explore those issues. And so when we talk about the context of creating these more integrated, more democratic, more diverse teams, we're also talking about the de facto 
consequence of building the humanities and humanistic inquiry into the um, processes of technological production in the sense of creating equity and enlarging the scope of representation in the process itself. Now, I ask this question both to kind of reflect on the way in which you're talking about expanding the intellectual diversity and certainly the representation across different disciplinary backgrounds uh, in tech, but also because your work has been foundational in thinking about how tech is shaping democratic participation and social justice. So we've talked a bit about democratizing and uh, enlarging the scope of representation within the arena of tech production itself. But I wonder if we could talk about how technologies themselves enable or unlock possibilities for building equity and social justice as an outcome of those technologies, as well as thinking about the uh, arena of the production in which diversification and democratization of the process is important. How do our technologies, particularly our digital technologies, create platforms for participation or conversely inhibit participation, particularly in crucial political spaces of representation? So unfortunately, I have so many examples of products (laughs) inhibiting participation. Can you give us one case or one example? Yes. um, We can think about everyday mundane products first, maybe, like the absence of pockets in women's clothes and how it restricts their movement in subtle but substantial ways. Or think of cities, we already talked about it, how the absence of sidewalks, bike lanes, public transportation or places to rest make them inaccessible to women, elderly, children and people with disabilities. In doing that, it's sort of one way or another restricts their ability to participate in civic life. Much has similarly been written about how hostile social media are toward women and people of color effectively silencing their voices. But I like to make sure I give you um, and your listeners a positive example too. One that comes to mind is, you know, with COVID and, you know, distance learning, there were a lot of problems that came to the fore, you know, absence of access to technology, laptops, quiet places, or even the internet. But a positive thing that came out of it was this like students who experienced social anxiety or were bullied in the classroom actually found a you know place that they could flourish but unfortunately you know now with um vaccines being more and more available, we are moving back to the old ways of doing things as opposed to taking this opportunity and thinking about what kind of educational environments do we design and whose mind bodies are we, you know, supporting. We could potentially use this learning experience to help more students learn as opposed to, you know, going back and forth between one or the other. I wanted to ask you a question too about, you know, how we understand the relationship between what a tech product says that it's going to do and what it actually does as well. Because I think that there's a relationship there between what a tech product says that it's going to do, especially uh, many of our tech products that say that they're going to create more just, equitable, or democratic solutions when they may actually inhibit 
those values or those solutions instead. And I think back to many conversations I've had uh, with people in the tech industry who tend to have a fairly, what I call, morally utopian view of what they are doing. And I think that sometimes that moral utopian vision, we're going to create X product that will allow us to enhance Y value, sometimes becomes a mask that maybe uh, allows them to abnegate looking at some of the facts of what their product is actually doing. So sometimes when tech companies ask me to tell them how to create an ethical product, I say that while I can't provide a definition or an answer to that question, I can provide some questions that they might ask themselves to consider whether their work or their products are, are ethical. And one of those questions is, what does this product factually actually do in the world. Because if you claim or believe that you've designed a product that, is, that does X, but your product actually primarily does Y, then your product doesn't do X. It actually does Y. So when it comes to thinking about whether or not a technology, for example, Zoom, enhances democratic participation in classes, and when it comes to the claim that it does create perhaps a more just or equitable or democratic solution to problems of accessibility, for example, how do we provide or come up with a metric for evaluating the reality of the product against the values? What would you give as advice to a tech CEO who asked you about a product and whether the product was ethical, whether the product was enabling a certain value? So I think one of the ways to approach this is perhaps looking at the nature of evidence and the kind of evidence that we collect and being more deliberate about, you know, the nature of the form of products we create and the form of interactions that they, you know, inhibit or facilitate. I think about something as simple as a table. Uh, say, you know, if you and I are meeting at a coffee shop, sitting around a small round table, the form of our conversation wouldn't be the same as if you came to my office and I had this, you know, corner office, let's imagine, and, you know, rectangular conference table, I'm sitting at the top. It is not to say that we cannot have a democratic, intimate conversation while a sort of office conceived like that. But the form of the table at the coffee shop does suggest certain way of being, certain way of interacting. And similarly with social media, the, you know, one thing to recognize, again, sort of maybe it goes back to taking away this idea of intentionality from the equation and thinking about, about the reality of what these technologies are doing, as you mentioned. How does Facebook's definition of friendship as weightless connection shape how we see friendship, how we interact with each other out in the world. Friendship, in my mind, requires investment. It requires uh, that knowing your friend's birthday is no longer the same as it used to be before, because before you had to really care about, you know, someone to remember uh, their birthday and, you know, call them up maybe. But now I get like 57 <laughs> happy birthdays and they don't mean anything on Facebook. So it has to do with being open to 
collecting evidence from different people and using different methodologies and really embracing when and if they contradict with the initial visions. I also think that, you know, small scale experiments can go a long way. And oftentimes there's a rush to introduce new technologies in ways that really does not allow for people to take into account all the ways that these technologies can go wrong. When we talk about technologies that enhance social justice movements or enhance uh, democratization, I'm interested in this idea that technologies not only are embedded with the values of their human creators, but actually get interwoven into human values and change our human values. And the context that you give of Facebook redefining this idea of friendship, I think it's a very good example of the fact that the technology may be changing a human value. Do you see technologies that are changing human values of social justice or democracy? If so, what are those technologies? There are many technologies to be concerned about and that are shaping, are poised to shape our future. One that I'm concerned most about is surveillance technologies, especially facial recognition. I'm concerned because more and more we are getting used to being watched, even with COVID. The idea of surveillance has become very much commonplace and we have internalized the idea that it's a good thing so more and more the limits of surveillance is being blurred even removed and these technologies then really foreclose possibilities for grassroots social change and political change especially in contexts such as where I'm coming from, in places that are still dealing with authoritarian governments, these technologies are used to keep track of dissidents and as a result, solidifying their hold on, on power. So to me, that is one technology to really be careful about and one that I'm watching closely. Another one that came to mind as you were talking is you know, something I've heard you talk about, um, which is the idea of the algorithm itself. And I think about what an algorithm is in terms of a technology and an algorithm is a technology takes data from the past, selects data from the past, and then encodes that data so as to pre-program the present and program the future. It has all of the inner workings of what we think about as memory, as human memory except for the fact that these memories are harvested by people in power in order to encode the future and to reinvest the future with that form of power. Now, you've talked about as algorithms as dead and predefined, but I would argue that in addition to being dead and predefined, they're also very much living and vivified and expansively defining the future possibilities themselves. So what do you mean when you call algorithms dead and predefined? And how would you talk about that idea of an algorithm being dead and predefined with alongside the, the idea that algorithms are very much alive and defining in perpetuity possible futures? So one of the questions that animates my research is what constitutes ethical inquiry? And a lot of people 
10, 20 years ago now when I started my research, this idea of ethics and design really always came down to figuring out a set of values that we can agree upon, a checklist that we can have to ensure that a technology is safe or fair. And it was really becomes clear if you think about feminist and pragmatic ethics is that principles and ethical theories can only give us so much that ultimately the situations we encounter are organic and a lot of the sort of we can agree on say maximizing life or you know maximizing pleasure but what that means in the here and now of the situation that is the work that people need to do what evidence applies um how do we frame the situation again our friend at the coffee shop back to his argument he is interested in saving lives no question about that but the way he frames the situation around that question is very reductive. So algorithms are sort of supercharged with this idea that we need a checklist or we need a set of predefined principles in the decision-making progress, because now we have to really program them to make decisions based on a recipe, based on a set of principles. And in that sense, to me, back to your question of human judgment versus machine judgment. Machine judgment is dead and predefined because it's based on a series of scenarios that we have imagined for it based on a set of criteria that are very rigid and fixed. Whereas if we think carefully about ethical situations that against which they need to decide, they will not be able to do what humans do. That is to, you know, frame and reframe situations, think about how these different values might apply to them, so on and so forth. So in that sense, I think algorithms are dead and predefined. Yeah, you juxtapose this idea of the dead and predefined algorithm to what you describe as, and I'm going to quote you, the realm of possibility, imagination, and ongoing inquiry. So what are the tools or skills or ecosystems that we should be leveraging to enter into this realm, to foreground this realm, to make sure that this realm, possibility, imagination, and ongoing inquiry is what animates our technologies? How does this realm drive us closer to a technological environment that's rooted in humanistic values? Well, we talked about the need for our educational and cultural environments to change Another part of that is to reorient our beginnings, to start with the lives and voices of those who are marginalized, to take through and shape interventions that could address social injustices. Co-design and participatory methods, when done meaningfully, have a lot of potential for identifying liberatory strategies as do storytelling or speculative and experimental methods that start small and modest to imagine a world that we want to live in. Rethinking theories, not as a set of ideologies or recipes we commit to, but as hypotheses around world building that we put to test in our day-to-day practices is important, I think. 
And finally, building coalitions across difference. In another place, I talk about the work that I do um, and more broadly, feminist work as conspiracy, complaining and cooking. We need all three if we are to advance social justice. Conspiracy is about coming and planning together in ways that may not necessarily be aligned with our institutions and cultures. Complaining is criticism as a way of identifying and describing the challenges and sort of abuses of power that we see in the world, leaning into the pain to understand it and to counter it. And cooking is about, you know, drawing the ingredients together whenever you can find them to nourish and sustain yourself and your family and your kin. That's how I see my work, you know, building theory or designing different things. And more broadly, I think conspiracy, complaining and cooking is a good framework to have (laughs) as we sort of as scholars and educators and, you know, citizens of the world. I love that cooking, complaining, conspiracy. They're wonderful metaphors. (laughs) I'm glad to once again see the elevation of uh, metaphors way of thinking and framing and ethics of technology. I wanted to ask you to maybe um, thread a couple of things together um, more specifically, because the context for this series is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanities-driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. We've been talking about this, I think, uh, across this conversation, but I'm interested to hear from you, particularly because you have a background um, in, in thinking about the technical dimension of technological ethics, as well as a more humanistic approach. What value do you see the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play? Or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what we do when we envision design and create technologies? Well, the way I see it in simple terms is that humanities give us a way of putting things in relationship. And in that sense, science and technology is part of humanities, is one way of putting things in relationship. Humanities give us philosophy. That's a way of analysis of what is a good life, what constitutes just action. They give us history that's appreciating what has come before us, both our accomplishments and our failures, So we understand ourselves and practices in light of what has come before us. You know, the story you shared about Whitehead, I think that's a story that humanities can give us and sort of we can put positivist ways of thinking into relationship with other philosophic approaches. Um, And finally, humanities give us interpretive and critical methods in literature, arts, social sciences for close reading of texts and things, especially if we broadly define what texts and things are. What one core lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you would want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? I think the one thing that bothers me a lot is when ethics is reduced to ideological commitment or regulation. So a set of checkboxes, a set of criteria to adhere to and sort of thinking about ethics as as something that is designed to limit you 
I'd like to put forward the possibility that ethics is the realm of imagination. Talking to other people, engaging different theories actually can open your world up in ways that is imbued with possibility as opposed to restricting your actions. So for me, the lesson, if there is any one lesson, is ethics as possibility as opposed to regulation. I love that. Ethics is possibility. Thank you very much, Nassim. Absolutely. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield-Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.